Research Briefs podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Streveler, coming to you from the School of Engineering Education at Purdue University. The goal of Research Briefs is to expand the boundaries of engineering education research. In these podcasts, we'll speak to researchers about new theories, new methods, and new findings in engineering education research. My guest today is Dr. Elliot P. Douglas, professor in the Departments of Environmental Engineering Sciences and Engineering Education at the University of Florida. He was chair of the Educational and Research Methods Division, also called ERM, of the American Society of Engineering Education. Elliot also served as a program officer for engineering education at the National Science Foundation and as a deputy editor of the Journal of Engineering Education. So as you can see, Elliot's done a lot of important stuff with engineering education. I've known him for 15 years. We calculated the other day, kind of aghast at that. (laughs) And he is one of the most highly regarded qualitative researchers in engineering education. Understanding qualitative research is one of the most difficult areas for a new engineering education researcher to understand, and so we wanted him to talk about this today. Through his own research and his time at NSF and at the Journal of Engineering Education, he's seen a lot of qualitative proposals and articles, and I know he has some very interesting thoughts about uh, that to share with us today. So welcome, Elliot. Thank you, Ruth, for inviting me, and I'm looking forward to our conversation today. And congratulations on engineering education being a department at the University of Florida. I know that's a a new development. So Yeah, that was really just uh, happened a couple weeks ago, within the last couple weeks, and so we're looking forward to really getting that going, establishing our PhD program, and and joining the ranks of other departments. That is wonderful. So uh, one of the things I didn't mention in your introduction is your uh, educational background, which was in material science. Mm -hmm. Um, And so your early research obviously was in material science, and now you're a qualitative researcher, which Mm -hmm. doesn't seem like a very direct path. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a bit about that path? Yeah. So, well, you know it fairly well because my first real introduction to engineering education research was the rigorous research and engineering education workshop that you and Carl Smith put together. I was lucky enough to be able to attend the first one in, I think it was 2004? 2004. Yeah. And so... You know, that's where I first heard about all the different pieces of engineering education research and how to do it. And I think, you know, the biggest thing from that workshop was that we received a mini grant of some very small amount mm-hmm. um, to do a project that's sort of sort of required, I guess. And, um, you know, as you might expect, they did a quantitative study. I was looking at, decided to look at critical thinking, and um, I used an existing instrument and I ran a cohort of graduate students and a cohort of undergraduate students through that instrument. And I got some very strange results in that the undergrad students scored higher than the graduate students. And then when I looked at the data a little differently, I saw that um, 
the graduate students had actually not completed it within the time allotment. And I had noticed this anecdotally when I was giving it, whereas the undergrads had. And so I remember emailing you, Ruth, and you suggested, well, you could do something sort of qualitative and ask them, you know, what happened? And so I did that, and I got some very interesting results. Um, essentially, the undergrads saying, oh, it's like the SATs. I did that recently, and some of the questions were confusing, so I took my best guess and moved on. And the graduate say, students saying, well, it's been a long time since I've seen a standardized test like this, like the SATs, and some of the questions were confusing, so it took me a long time to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And I think that really pointed out to me the power of qualitative research to understand the why behind things. You can get, you know, quantitative numbers of something. Um, You can have things with the same average, maybe even in different distributions or different averages, you know, on a T-test, they come out differently. Uh, But it doesn't tell you why that's happening. And that's really what qualitative research does. And that's, those were the kinds of questions and things I started to get interested in. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I really moved to qualitative research. We find that with so many of our graduate students that they'll come in only knowing quantitative and therefore thinking that's what their research will be. And then when they get a taste of qualitative and see the richness, they kind of get hooked. Yeah, because I think you can really get into depth and understand people and understand what's going on with qualitative research. I mm-hmm. find it fun. Um, there's a lot of philosophy involved. Um, and you're really understanding people when you're doing qualitative research. Now, speaking of philosophy, I understand that um, when I did a little research on you, that you have like a double degree, undergrad degree in, was it? materials and music yeah it was in music um yeah although to be honest it's more like a minor um because they didn't have minors at the time so i was Mm -hmm. able to double count double count like half my materials courses Um, but yeah i've always done music of various kinds actually i find a lot of engineers do it actually because music is actually very quantitative in Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of engineers are do do music so i i point that out because you know, we have this stereotype of, oh, someone did engineering research, therefore they couldn't be interested in some other kind of more human thing. And that that seeing that you were also studying music reminded me that that's really a very false idea of, of engineers as well. Yeah, it is. And I think we do a disservice in the way we educate our students sometimes. Um, in terms of teaching them that engineering is about like solving this math, these mathematical problems. Mm-hmm. And it's really about the social dimensions of, of, of creating solutions for society and helping people. And I think a lot of engineers, a lot of students get into engineering with that mindset. That that's why they want to do engineering of various kinds. Um, and then maybe they get disillusioned by it and they become socialized to a different way of thinking that's not in line with what they wanted. And then, you know, either they drop out of engineering or they keep going, but then, you know, it's not, then they get into the workplace and it's, again, it's, it's different again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to actually ask you one question that I, I didn't prepare you for. And that I realize that I, you know, I know obviously having 
helped to lead the RREE in um, 2004. I know about that part of your story, Mm -hmm. but I actually do not know what attracted you to apply for the RREE in the first place. Yeah, I'll have to think back a little bit. I mean, I can take you through the story a little bit more going back to when I joined the University of Florida in 1996. I didn't really have any teaching experience, um, but I had always been interested in things. I had, you know, tutored a friend through qualifying exams. I mean, she always said that she would not have gotten through the PhD qualifying exams if it wasn't for me. So, so I was interested in that. I had been working at Los Alamos National Laboratory and I looked into the possibility of teaching um, at the University of New Mexico branch campus up there, but not very seriously. I didn't. I just quickly decided it wasn't going to work with the travel schedule I had and, and things like that. So I came here with an interest in teaching. And the first summer, so it would have been the summer of 97, I taught one semester. And then I went to this workshop at West Point, at the time called Teaching Teachers to Teach Engineering. Um, now it's exceed excellence in civil engineering education because it's run by the American Society of Civil Engineers. But I learned the techniques for teaching that they have there um, because most of their faculty are just on the usual three-year mm-hmm. military assignment, so they can't afford them to take a year or two to figure out how to teach. So that department in particular, civil civil and mechanical engineering, puts them through this training process. They'd gotten a grant to teach others. And um, it was very successful for me. Like, my evaluations went up. And I'm not sure I can place how or why or when it happened, but I became interested in the scholarship of teaching and learning aspect of it. Am I effective in the classroom? I started... um, you know, trying some active learning things. And I collaborated with someone here briefly who was here for a little while. Um, we didn't get a whole lot done, but I was looking for more opportunities like that. And I got an email or something about it, and it just seemed to be what I wanted to do. And, mm-hmm. and you know, it seems like I, I guess I took to it pretty well. Yes, yes. We would always call you the RREE poster boy. <laughs> Well, there's plenty of others out there. Um, there are, but you were right. the, the, you know, from that first cohort, and you were the shining star of that first cohort. So, um, so kind of going uh, a little bit forward in time now, um, learning about qualitative research is difficult for a lot of people because it does require a paradigm shift. So I'm, I'm going to take you back to now you you have this mini grant from the RREE it's 2004-2005 can you say a bit more about that part of the process now knowing that you're really known for this kind of research how did the, can, can you say some of the the beginning steps that you took and how you did that yeah so you know, I look back now and I think, you know, at the time I thought I was doing qualitative research when I sent that email out and now, you know, kind of shudder to think of calling that qualitative research, but it was a starting point. Um, and, you know, I just started trying to find resources. I really, you know, I didn't know anything. Um, I got lucky and I talked to um, Alicia Waller was a qualitative researcher, and she was very kind to spend quite a bit of time on the phone with me, talking through things. Um, but then I wanted someone local that I could 
you know, potentially learn from. And I looked in, in our call of, of education, I found the name of a qualitative methodologist, uh, Mirko Karl Lindberg, and I was going to AERA, American Association, American Educational Research Association, and she was giving a paper. And I essentially walked up to her at the end of her talk and introduced myself. And I'm, I've talked to her since. She said, like, you know, like, who's this engineer who wants to talk to me about qualitative research? That doesn't even make any sense, right? <laughs> um, but she agreed. And one of the things she told me was that she ran this, um, I call it a support group for qualitative researchers on campus, <laughs> mostly students, um, who... Uh, you know, had questions about, you know, would present like issues they were going through. Sometimes it was things like, I'm trying to, how do I convince my dissertation committee that this qualitative stuff I'm doing is worthwhile? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I started going to that and just learning a lot from that. Um, and then, you know, I always say that I did a, you know, I have my PhD and the dissertation I did for that, but I always say that I have another dissertation in engineering education and qualitative research. And that is the, I think it's 2008 paper that America and I did together on, uh, we called it a meta-analysis of qualitative articles in the Journal of Engineering Education. We looked at the, um, compared the stated epistemology in these, those papers with the sort of assumed based on the way they did the research and looked for matches or mismatches or, or no statements at all. And I call that one my dissertation because that was, you know, four or five years after I started doing work. And what happened through this support group was one semester, we just as a group decided we want to learn about writing papers, qualitative papers. And so the process was that we were all going to write papers and talk through each section every time we met once a month or so. And to do that, Mirka and I worked together to create this this paper through that process. And so I learned all about epistemology and theoretical frameworks through the process of analyzing the papers we looked at and then writing that paper. So it was a long process, like I said, four mm-hmm. or five years before I felt you know, comfortable with this idea of epistemology. And that, that still continues to grow. It never, mm-hmm. it never ends. Right, right. So I know you said you did lots and lots of reading and mm-hmm. still continue to do lots of reading. Yeah. Um, a couple of things that are common stumbling blocks when people try to uh, learn qualitative research is they find the language sometimes difficult. Did you find that as well? And if so, how did you help yourself deal with that? Yeah, yeah, the language is difficult and can be confusing at times. Different, The same term is used to mean different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, it's just, again, it's a matter of reading. You know, one of, one of the things about, maybe this isn't just about terminology, but this is about methodologies in general, is never stop reading about them. So unfortunately, I see too many examples of people who cite a book, a kind of a general method, so maybe maybe Creswell's book as an example, and that's the end of what they've done, right? We have to, you can't do that because that's just one perspective, that's just one piece of it, and there's so much more 
that you can read about. There's books on all the different methodologies. There's books and articles on interviewing. I just subscribed to Table of Contents Alerts. Um, I just got one this week about transcription. You think like transcription, that's just, you know, send it out to somebody or, you know, listen to it and write it down. This article was talking about the epistemological choices that are made in terms of how you do a transcription and what analyses are and are not possible depending on how you do that transcription. And so even something as simple as that um, isn't actually not so simple. Um, Not an article I would have found or would have necessarily thought about if I hadn't subscribed to this table of contents alert. Right, right. Um, The other thing is early on, so I would go to um, Norman Denzen's Qualitative Congress, which he has every May at the University of Illinois, where he is. And this is populated with qualitative methodologists. So people who think about methodology all the time and and, um, are writing things about methodology and stuff. And and I'd go to these talks with these big names and I would understand very little of what they were saying. But that was okay because I started to pick up things as I went along. In fact, I remember one time, um, Mirka, who I mentioned, she gave a talk at the Congress or something, and then followed up with the talk at AERA or vice versa. And it was the same talk. And I mentioned I was going to go to the second one. She said, oh, well, you already heard it at the other conference. I'm like, I only understood like 10% of (laughs) the talk you gave last time. Maybe if I go again, maybe now I'll understand like 10% more. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so, you know, don't, don't be afraid to not understand, right? Mm -hmm. Understanding is, is continuous. And you have to just kind of, again, find those people that are, are willing to help translate. and. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah, finding yes. a mentor, um, things like that. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned the word methodologies. So this might be a good place to have you help listeners over what sometimes can be confusion between the words methodology and methods. Mm-hmm. Could you explain that? Yeah, so methodology, I'll give sort of the definitions, then I'll give an analogy. Okay. Methodology is the overall approach you're going to take to the research. So common ones people have heard of, thematic analysis, grounded theory, narrative analysis, phenomenology, phenomenography, discourse analysis, things like that. Methods are the specific steps you're going to take interviews, I'm going to code data, I'm going to do this particular thing, right? And so the analogy I give is to like planning a trip, okay? So the methodology is the overall plan to the plan for the trip. I'm in Florida. I'm going to go visit you, Ruth, up at Purdue. So I'm going to decide, um, am I going to drive or am I going to fly, right? And you know, I want to leave, I want to go like in the summer when it's hot here and not too cold there. Right? So those kinds of things kind of set out the overall plan. Um, so I decide I'm going to fly. I'm going um, to, um, so now I'm going to look for flights. Right now the method is I'm going to fly from Jacksonville, Florida, because it's cheaper for me to fly from there than Gainesville. That's an hour and a half drive. So I have to get in my car. I go to the end of my street. I turn left. 
Um, I turn right at the next light. I follow that road, et cetera, et cetera. I, you know, I'm going to go to this parking lot. I'm going to fly on flight number one, two, three, four, which leaves at this time. Those are all the methods, right? And so those are the specific steps. And one of the things that this analogy helps with, I think, is this idea that methods and methodology need to be aligned, right? So if I decide that my methodology for my trip is an airplane flight, then it doesn't make any sense for my method to pull up Google Maps and see what the route is for me to drive all the way from Florida to Indiana, because that's a method, but it doesn't match the methodology of flying in an airplane. Same thing. So if I'm going to do grounded theory, then that tells me how I'm going to do my interview and what my interview questions are going to be like, which is going to be different than if I'm doing a phenomena, phenomenography and doing an interview for a phenomenography or a narrative analysis and doing an interview for, for a narrative analysis. So think about that as you're thinking about it. You can't just do an interview and then like decide like, oh, I'm going to analyze it this way. Because you wanted the right data because your method didn't match your methodology. So have you, as you were both looking at papers as a deputy editor for the Journal of Engineering Education or looking at proposals at uh, the National Science Foundation, did you find that methodologies and methods didn't match often? Is that a common mistake people make? Or Well, it is a mistake. I, I don't, I'm not sure I would say it was common. I, mean, I, don't, I don't have any numbers to say it was common or not common. But it is a mistake. People um, not aligning methods and methodologies and research questions and epistemologies. And um, also, particularly with papers, you can tell that people haven't, when someone hasn't thought about why they're doing what they're doing, right? So they're treating the, whatever they read as a checklist. Like if I do this, 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 and this, I've done qualitative research. Mm-hmm. Um, throwing around terms that don't really make sense. For example, calling the constant comparative um, approach a methodology. That's not a methodology. That's part of, that's one of the methods, the things you did to look at your data, but it's not a methodology. Mm -hmm. Um, Or saying something like we did phenomenological interviews and that's the only time phenomenology is mentioned. Um, Things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so again that comes down to understanding why you're doing what you're doing making decisions about that conscious decisions about this is what i want to know and therefore this is what i need to do not just like oh i'm going to do ground theory and this is what kathy Sharmaz says i'm supposed to do this 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 and this and then i've done ground theory like that's not and that's not a good approach. A better approach is, what do I want to know? It matches up with grounded theory in some way, and then I am going to really try to understand and look at what I'm doing. A really, really good um, guidance for this to help you think about all these pieces is the what's called the Q3 framework 
Um, Joe Walter, Nikki Sashka, and others published this in the Journal of Engineering Education. And it's a set of guiding questions around validity for qualitative research. And I think it really even goes beyond this idea of quality. It, well, I mean, they designed it to help you design your research study, but I think it helps with the methodology because it's questions like, you know, does this research help me to understand the reality under investigation? Right, right. That's something you need to make sure you're actually doing. And so when people become overwhelmed by the possibilities mm-hmm. of um, the methodologies that are available, I, I think I've heard you say before that having this idea of, of, you know, what is it that you really want to find out is a good guide to help you through that sea of possibilities. Yeah, and um, that's how I always start. And, and I have two NSF-funded projects right now, and I can kind of explain those two and, and how what we wanted to know defined the methodology. And from there, the proposals sort of wrote themselves, if you will, at least mm-hmm. the, the, the methodology section. So one is on understanding ambigu- ambiguity in problem solving. And where we started was, we've done some work on problem solving in the past, me and my um, colleague David Terrio here at the University of Florida, he's in the College of Education, and he's a cognitive scientist, quantitative kind of guy. And, um, and he was on the original projects that, with, uh, with Mirka Karlumberg, the original, that was our original team. She has since left here. She's at Arizona State now. But um, so we were looking... So, we know that what we eventually want to do is we want to understand how people's students' ability to solve ambiguous problems, different kinds of ambiguous problems, um, is, is correlated with other characteristics. So, so, for example, their content knowledge or their working memory capacity or their epistemic beliefs. And that's the proposal we were going to write. We started thinking about how would we write ambiguous problems, different types. And looking in the literature, it turns out there is no definitions of ambiguity, especially related to engineering problem solving. So people define, you know, talk about what's Ill, what ill-structured problems are. Um, there's David Jonathan's taxonomy of problem types. Um, but people mention the problems are ambiguous without ever really defining what it was. So we had no guidance to go on. And then David said to me, you know, what we really need is like a taxonomy of ambiguity. And as soon as he said taxonomy, I said, oh, that's a phenomenography. And that has guided everything we did and are doing. So our interview protocol is around trying to understand the variations in ambiguity. So we're asking, we ask questions about like, okay, why is this problem ambiguous? What could make it more ambiguous? What could make it less ambiguous? You know, those aren't the kind of questions we would ask if we were doing some other kind of methodology. So that's one. The other one we're doing is we're looking at um, the experiences of black engineers in the IT industry. And in that particular case, for various reasons, we wanted to make sure that we maintained the voices of individuals. And, and really, I should say, really where it started was, was our industry partner who um, is really trying to push within the industry in, in the Silicon Valley area in California increased diversity, you know, there's been a lot of talk, but the climate at companies, you know, they can hire a bunch, but the climate at companies is, is not great. And so he wanted to be able to bring stories of people to like 
directors of companies and executive boards because stories are more powerful than just numbers when you talk about this one. And if they, his idea was if you could hear the people speaking about the difficulties they're going through, then that might prompt some changes in climates at these companies. Well, if you're talking about stories, you're talking about narrative analysis. And so right away, I mean, from the very beginning, when we, he and I first started talking, God, I don't know, could have even have been two and a half, three years ago, we've been developing this idea around doing narratives. And then the other reason for doing that is because these experiences are so personal, breaking them up in a way that like ground theory would do doesn't make sense. We want to be able to tell each person's story, each person's story is unique. And so, again, that immediately said, we'll do narrative analysis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So again, I just come back to this idea that what do you want to get out of the study? What do you want to know? And what kind of an outcome do you want, right? Right. Right. Taxonomy of problems of ambiguity. We wanted stories of people's experiences. So another question I would like to ask is, in the podcast, I encourage people to think about creating new methods. Mm -hmm. And I know you have a a viewpoint about that question that I would very much like you to share. So um, please do that. (laughs) I don't think that question in and of itself makes any sense, at least to me, right? Because it implies some formalized process, I think, of how do I create a new method, and then some formalized structure at the end, which, you know, I think may turn out to look too much like a checklist. So, I suppose that in my research group, we have created methodologies, but it's really just because, like, we're trying to figure out what to do to get the data we want or get the analysis we want. So for one example, in the ambiguity um, project, we're using what we're calling, we've called artifact elicitation, sort of in parallel to photo elicitation where we ask someone in this case to bring in two or three problems that they think were ambiguous, they've had to solve at some point. Because, and and where this came out of was actually a different project on critical thinking um, where um, my student, was having difficulty getting her participants to talk about critical thinking. Like it was just a debate, like what is critical thinking to you? And they were like, you know, some big, big thing. And so what we came up with was this idea of, okay, what if we just like, we want to know like when they've had to use critical thinking. So let's ask them to bring in something that they thought needed them. They needed to use critical thinking to do. And then we can just ask them, like, okay, why? What is critical thinking? What did you have to do when you solved this to use critical thinking, right? And so we ended up publishing a paper with Sean Jordan and Michael Landy in the ASCE conference proceedings in, I think, 2015 um, called Artif- about artifact elicitation. But, you know, it was just a pragmatic thing, like, how do we get the data we want? Um, you know, another example. So... Um, I'm working with a student from electrical engineering who is looking at um, the experience of undergraduate teaching assistants through this program that he created. And he's really interested in motivation and things like that. So he's, he's um, 
pulled a bunch of theories together that he's kind of mushing together. I guess that's another creation thing, right? People are like, how do I create new theories? I don't know. We just, like, he pulled a self-determination theory and and commitment theory and adult learning theory, I think it was. And he's identified some parallels, so he's going to do that analysis. And so we talked about how would you analyze the data from these different perspectives. And, you know, what we came up with was this idea that you read the transcript once, through the through the lens of self-determination theory um, and this builds um from a book called thinking with theory by alicia jackson and lisa, lisa mazze um we can talk about coding in just a minute um but it's sort of this idea that you don't code data right you, you read the data through the lens of a theory so so what we came up with was okay so we start with self-determination theory and look for statements that are related to the elements of self-determination theory and highlight those in different colors depending on whether it's um, uh, competence, autonomy, or relatedness, the three pieces of self-determination theory. And then he'll do that. And then he'll do that for commitment theory and whatever. And so we'll be able to pull, he'll be able to pull out these different pieces and say, okay, how do these different people talk about their experiences and why they did what they did as an undergraduate TA or became and why they became an undergraduate TA through the lens of self-determination theory or through the lens of commitment theory. So is that a new methodology? Uh, I don't know. It's just something that he's doing that mm-hmm. made sense to answer the questions he wanted to have answered. So what I, I really uh, enjoy about that, your perspective is that it highlights that this is a very organic process that, again, this isn't creating something then that is written in stone somewhere, but that it is driven by your purpose. And that, of course, you want to document what you did so people could understand it and decide if they agree with it or not. But um, I I just really enjoy that. Yeah. So since you mentioned coding, Mm -hmm. We have to have you talk about that a bit because um, I know what you have to say will be really enlightening for people. Well, the first thing is a lot of people think that coding is qualitative research. That is, if I'm if if I'm coding, I'm doing qualitative research. If I want to do qualitative research, I need to code. And if I say that I coded, that's sort of sufficient, right? And it's not, right? So one thing I saw a lot in proposals was. Um, they just said like, oh, we're going to do like standard qualitative analysis and we're going to code the data. Like that was the entire method section. Like reviewers were like, uh, no, we need to know what you're actually going to do. Like, how are you going to code? What kinds of things are you going to look for? What are you doing? You know, just there's all kinds of things to do with coding. And I also like to always give examples when I write proposals or write papers. So it's not just that I code it, but I'll give an example of like, so for example, um, in a paper, it would be like, you know, this statement was code, was this, the one person said this kind of thing, and this was coded as this, and then that was combined with other codes to create this higher level code, et cetera, et cetera, um, and maybe give a table of all the different codes or something, I don't I, you know, but, you know, more than just like I coded. But more fundamentally, I'm actually moving away from thinking of coding as uh, an appropriate technique for qualitative data analysis, particularly in the interpretive approach. Um, because 
and, and I'll say this comes out of work um, published by Betty St. Pierre, Elizabeth St. Pierre, who's at University of Georgia. Um, and she calls it post-qualitative analysis or, um, or after-coding. Patty Lather has also written some about this. She's at Ohio State. So the issue with coding that they talk about is that it's, it is positivist in the sense you're, you're breaking down data into little manageable chunks and then rearranging them in some way to get something new. And then the other problem with it is, and so, so you sort of lose the, um, the individual, the personal, the, the, the deepness when you break things apart like that. And the other problem is that most of the qualitative research I've seen where they do something like that, and, and they say they did grounded theory, this is another common one, they say they did grounded theory when they really only did thematic analysis. I shouldn't say only, this thematic analysis is useful, but they didn't do ground theory, they did thematic analysis. But the themes they come up with, as um, Betty St. Pierre has said something like, you know, they're, they're obvious, right? They're every day, they're like, they're just descriptive. It's like, I could have come up with that list just if I sat down and thought a little bit about like the, the environment. To me, that is like, that is not useful at all. I don't need a description, I need an interpretation, right? What does it mean? Um, and so, in my mind, coding doesn't help you do that very well. I mean, you can sort of try to do it, but it doesn't do it very well, I've learned. And so these other ways of reading through theory and trying to understand the nuances and the interpretation and what's behind what they're saying, rather than just taking things at face value, you know, there's this attitude of a lot of times of like, well, we need to let the voices of our participants speak for themselves or something. I'm like, no, right? You want to, if I want to do that, I can just have a conversation with somebody. Right? No, what I want is I want to understand why that's happening, why they're saying what they're saying. What's the connection to the way we understand the world? Mm-hmm. That's what I want to know. So I ask as a ending question to people to give advice. So I will ask that to you as well. If someone is just starting out doing qualitative research or even thinking about it, what would be advice you would have for them? Read. Read a lot. Um, and just work your way through stuff. There's lots of different levels. I mean, one, I'll, I'll do a little personal plug that Carolyn Bailey and I uh, wrote a guest art editorial for the Journal of Engineering Education in 2014. Um, issue number one, and it goes through a lot of stuff of these things we've talked about today. So it talks about method versus methodology, talks about theory versus theoretical framework, because those terms are used differently in the qualitative world and in the engineering educational research world. Um, And then as examples of epistemology, we we used um, design education as example and pulled a bunch of articles that were all about design education, qualitative, but done with different methodologies and different epistemological perspectives. And we talk about that and show how to get a complete picture. You know, each one gives you a different 
view of it. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. sort of need the whole thing. Um, even quantitative work is yes. important. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Um, because it is, right? You need to know sort of those general trends. You need to understand the big picture, which is what the quantitative data can get you. Well, to help readers, we will have that citation on the website so they can look it up. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I think it's about seven pages long. So it's not, it's not huge, but it's not a few sentences either. So it's a good starting point, I think. Yep. Well, I could keep talking to you for a long time. It's fun but to talk about this stuff. I love it. It is. It is fun to talk about it. Um, and maybe we'll have to do part two at some point. But uh, for now, I will. I know you've, you've got stuff to run off and do. So I will just say thank you very much. It's, it's been really enjoyable and fun chatting with you. Well, thank you for having me. I've, I've, I've had fun too. Research Briefs is produced by the School of Engineering Education at Purdue. Thank you to Patrick Vogt for composing our theme music. A transcript of this podcast can be found by Googling Purdue Engineering Education Podcast. And please check out my blog, ruthstreveler.wordpress.com.